We're here with Jeff Davidson, the work-life balance expert. And today, Jeff, we're talking about attachment and how to overcome it on the Career Pro Inc. podcast. Let's go. Attachment, what a strange phenomenon. Let me begin with a quote. When anyone asks me how I can best describe my experience in nearly 40 years at sea, I merely say, uneventful. Of course, there have been winter gales and storms, fog and the like, but in all my experience, I have never been in any accident or any sort worth speaking about. I have seen but one vessel in distress in all my years at sea. I never saw a wreck. I have never been in a wreck, nor was I ever in any predicament that threatened to end in a disaster of any sort. That was Edward J. Smith in 1907. Yikes. In 1912, <laughs> Edward J. Smith, captain of the Titanic, went down with the ship. So, attachment. We are attached from before we're born, in the womb, to our mothers, and then after birth. We become attached to our parents, of course, teachers, coaches, peers, groups, and then even information sources. We become dependent upon them. We look forward to it. It's a regular part of our being. We don't question it. The attachment is secure in so many different ways. We're attached to products. We're attached to services. We're attached to approaches. In other words, ways of doing things. We're attached to friends, of course, and lovers, leaders, and even viewpoints, possessions, positions that we take, and projections that we have for the future. Attached to all of it. A woman by the name of Karen Weigel said years ago, the change which, of course, is the antithesis of attachment. Mm -hmm. Change is inevitable except from a vending machine. Well said. There's nothing wrong with attachment per se. It makes a lot of sense. It's certainly in relationships, certainly in long-term mutually benefit associations. It's when we don't recognize the limiting aspects of the attachment, or the attachment has long stopped serving us, or the attachment blinds us to inconvenient or untrue or completely uh, adverse ways of looking at a situation, that's when we have to get on our horse and say, okay, wait a second, maybe it's time for me to make a change here. But now, what is one of the problems when it comes to change. Human beings, since time began, crave regularity. They resist change. Mm -hmm. Too much change too fast, you'll snap right back to where you were. Yet in this world, in this day and age, there really is no more standing still. The status quo keeps shifting for everyone all the time. New technology creates it. Changes in social mores, changes in leadership, changes in the supply of goods and services, changes in the weather. 
So while we crave stability and balance and predictability, we've got to recognize that time and tide waits for no one. It marches on. And in one form or another, at one time or another, there are attachments that each of us need to overcome, that each of us need to step away from. Parata is <laughs> a tough name. Heraclitus, an old dead Greek philosopher, said, you cannot step in the same river for other waters are continually flowing in. So what kind of change do we face on a regular basis? Global, cultural, social, as well as economic, political, certainly technological change. Eric Hoffer, the great philosopher and former longshoreman said, in a time of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. So we want to be learners, not the learned. The learned are the ones with the major attachment problems, the learners are the ones that have a fighting chance of moving on when the attachment no longer serves the original purpose. Alvin Toffler told us years ago, some 50 years ago now really, that the mode of learning for human beings, again since time began, was to learn and then learn more and then learn even more. And then he, rec he recognized that in today's society, the mode of learning needs to be to learn, to unlearn, and to relearn. Mm -hmm. Think about uh, software. If you learn it, and then you learn even more and learn even more while completely new software comes along that usurps it. You have to unlearn the old ways. The keystrokes you used before are going to get in your way, literally. So you have to unlearn and then relearn so that you'd be more efficient with the keystrokes that you now need to depress. Very, very useful and uh, poignant insight. All of social psychology tells us that when it comes to attachment and overcoming attachment, when it comes to change and adopting change, when it comes to any kind of behavior, that behavior which is rewarded gets repeated, mm. especially if the reward comes quickly. If the reward comes days, weeks, months later, comes too slowly, we don't associate the reward with the new behavior. So on our quest to overcome attachment to those products, services, approaches, thoughts, beliefs, ideas that we have, we can self-reward. But the self-reward needs to come relatively quickly. So. If I'm here and I'm working on something and I'm trying to overcome my attachment to what no longer serves me, and I feel I've made a breakthrough, maybe a couple minutes afterwards I give myself the mini reward of having a granola bar 
or walking down the hall or getting a sip of water or checking my cell phone. Something whatever, small. Something small, whatever it happens to be. Instead of letting it bottle up, we'll wait, we'll wait, we'll wait. No, go ahead, check the cell phone, do whatever you need to do to feel satisfied, then to get back to the fray. However, in a situation where you're going on and on, and this happens a lot of times like in training sessions where whole groups of people are sitting there, they're learning this and this and this, and they're making strides, but they don't get a break, they don't get a chance to give themselves the self-reward, the instructor or the, the course itself is not designed to give them the award, the reward that they need to move forward. You've got to get to the next session behavior. to exactly. end on time. Exactly. When that happens, <clears throat> you find that the new behavior does not necessarily seal. You want to seal it in. So you've got to give yourself the reward. There is a, a photograph I use when I'm in sessions with people live where in Japan, in the morning, hundreds and hundreds of people come down to the subway station to get into the same cars to be whisked away to work. And because there are so many people trying to get in the same cars at the same time, if you can believe this, there are platform workers whose sole responsibility is to push people, push people into the car so they can pack as many in before the subway takes off, subway car, uh, train takes off. Sardine can. Sardine can effect. All right. So my question is this. <laughs> if you're one of these people who holds the job and you do need to get to work on time and this is your only path to get there, would you not forsake your attachment to coming down to the station at 7.30 or 8 a.m. and be pushed into the car. Would you not come down at 5 a.m. or 6 or perhaps 9 or 10 in the morning? You've got to forsake your way of doing things when it's so heinous, if you will. Assaulting. Assaulting. Good word. So all around the world, we see people attached to the ways of doing things. Well, my job is from 8 to 5. Can you not negotiate with your boss and make it from 6 to 3? Or 4 in the morning till, uh, you know, <laughs> whenever? You can in many instances. Today especially. Can you not stay home on occasion, work from home, negotiate with your boss? Even every other Wednesday would be a godsend if you think about it. Suppose you don't go to work five days a week. Suppose you stay home every other Wednesday. That means for the week you're staying home on that Wednesday, Tuesday night becomes almost like a mini vacation because you know you're not going back in again until mm -hmm. the next day, until uh, Thursday. You don't have to get stuffed in that subway. That's car. right. Now, when you go back on Thursday, no matter how bad it is, another day, it's going to be Friday afternoon. Now, the next week, you might work all five days in your regular routine downtown. But the week after that, you got Wednesday at home again to work. So even a minor adjustment such as that breaks to your the routine. working schedule breaks the routine and also gives you the opportunity to have new insights. Because you're working from home, and we're assuming you're a diligent worker, you're going to get things done. You, ex you experience different thoughts working in a different venue. 
If you're in your office right now listening to this, sit in the corner of your office with your iPad or your tablet or your phone or whatever. You will have different thoughts than if you sit at your desk. So breaking the routine, embracing change, not always all that difficult. Sometimes just a little step here or there will make a difference. Now, on your path to overcoming attachments that no longer serve you, it's helpful to identify resources. Normally, the resources associated with making a significant change are these. Money, time, time investment, assistance, assistance from others, having the right technology, certainly, perhaps having to change your technology, maybe training, maybe attending a session, maybe greater education, maybe just a one-time workshop. These resources can make a huge difference, and in many cases, they're crucial, so don't overlook them. The philosopher Plato, also a dead Greek guy, said, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Hmm. Fighting a hard battle. Good point. When my daughter was about four or five years old, we recognized that she had musical talent. She had been banging on a toy piano and actually making sounds that were sounded palatable. Like sounded like music. Sounded like music. So <laughs> as it turns out, we, we, we looked for a <clears throat> piano teacher. And my goodness, what, what luck. Two houses down on the same street was one of the foremost piano teachers in Chapel Hill. So she could walk, literally walk, without even stepping into the road, walk through one yard, next yard, and she'd be at the piano teacher's house. Well, she starts playing piano, and we are told that we need to get her piano, so we buy her an upright. She's six years old, the upright's three or $400, and she's making great sounds. Now, two years later, the piano teacher comes to us again and says, you need to buy her a grand piano. Hmm. I'm saying to myself, grand piano, they start at $10,000. You can go up to $90,000, you can have the Liberace diamond-studded version. I'm not paying $10,000 plus for a piano, so I do my usual kicking and screaming, and then finally I relent, I buy the piano. It's your kid, Jeff. It's my kid. <laughs> now, the day, the day that the piano is going to arrive is approaching, and I happen to mention, as two or three days out, I happen to mention my daughter that the old piano has got to go. Because we can get three or four hundred dollars in trade-in. And that counts. Well, this, the, the moment she hears the old piano has to go, she breaks out into a sob. It's the only piano I've ever known. Why does it have to go? And I use all my fatherly skills to convince her that she won't even miss it after a couple days when she has the bright new grand piano. It'll all be so fine. But she goes on and on. Well, can't we keep both? We didn't really have the room. Well, this goes on for two days, and I just don't know what to do. Finally, the day that the piano movers are coming, and they're, they're literally walking up the driveway, I say, Valerie, look at it this way. 
They're going to take the old piano. I know you're going to miss it. I know you're going to miss it. And we had already taken pictures. We, we did everything you could do, you know, beforehand. But look at it this way. They're going to take it back to the piano emporium. They're going to put it on the floor. Some other little girl with her parents are going to walk around. They're going to see that piano. They're going to buy it. They're going to take it home. They're going to love it. It's going to be in their house. And it'll, it'll be so nice. And I knew that she was ready to let go of her attachment at age eight when she said, or maybe it'll be a little boy. <laughs> so if an eight-year-old can overcome that level of attachment, we can too. We can change. We can all change. We can, we can meet the challenge. So let's just look at a couple of... Uh, observations and then wind it up. The human mind appreciates closure and a clean ending. You can read psychology book or article after article and it will confirm that that observation. The old piano has to go but hey it'll go into another home. It'll continue to serve. I can deal with that. I can handle that. When it was just going and we don't know its fate there's no closure for me as an eight-year-old or as a 38-year-old. You don't have to race today, necessarily. Some days you have to race. But today, take things at a calm and even pace. Think through the changes you need to make. And then the Zen observation. To know and not to do is not yet to know. That's worth repeating. To know and not to do is not yet to know. Until you make the changes, you don't know. You can sit there and intellectualize all you want, but you've got to get into action. All right, as we close, I'm going to leave you with one single word, maybe the most powerful word <laughs> in, in the English language. In terms of overcoming attachment, in terms of moving on to your next field of endeavor, whatever it happens to be, in terms of embracing change, there is one single word that will put you on a good path. Are you ready for that word? I'm ready. Here it is, and this will be our closing, our closing term. Next. Next. <laughs>